welcome everyone to First Universalist Unitarian Church of Wausau. My name is Brian Mason. I serve the church's minister. This is a unique service this morning as I wanted to tell a bit of the church's history. Uh, the plague rolled into town, as you all um, know, and so we missed a lot of our 150th uh, celebrations that we had planned, which was really unfortunate. And we had several things that we wanted to accomplish, and one of the things that we wanted to accomplish was to tell a bit about the history of universalism, the history of the church, and then also lift up some of the significant characters who have been a member of the church going back now 151 years. And so that's, that's my goal this morning is to start from the beginning uh, to show how universalism found its way up here to north central Wisconsin and then to tell a few stories about, about some of the members. Universalism is the belief that God's love saves humankind from all of hell's torments. And this idea is as old as religion, and some might say that this idea is even as old as God. But it took until 1770 for universalism to find its way to the American colonies, and once it did, it spread like wildfire. By the year 1850, not even 100 years later, there were more than 800 thousand people who belong to one of the 700 universalist churches in America. And barely a hundred years later, the fire was already going out. A survey conducted in 1958 shows that of the 700 churches, at that point there were only 289 universalist churches left. And of the 800,000 members, the membership had dwindled down to only 43,000. The only thing that matches universalism's meteoric rise is probably its meteoric fall. Universalist seminaries, colleges, and humanitarian organizations were shuttered or sold, and all but one of the 350 universalist publications went permanently out of print. Theistic universalism waned in prominence, and in its place rose a secular humanistic ambition that wanted to fuse all religions into one world religion. And the Universalist Church of America ceased to be altogether in 1961 after merging with the Unitarians to form the Unitarian Universalist Association. So the late Harvard historian George Williams, he said this, and I quote, American Universalism is a much more complex movement than American Unitarianism. And I agree with that statement. I'd also like to add that I think the story of universalism is more interesting, too. Universalism was and is a faith practiced by people who dreamed and hoped as they lived and died. Early universalists sacrificed much to bring the message of God's universal love, and some of those people sacrificed everything. And the story of universalism in Wausau is no different. Everyday people sacrificed their time, their land, and their money to give birth to a church that told everyone, whether you were rich or poor, black or white, woman or man, hopeful or hopeless, that God is love and God's love is limitless. So this paper focuses on universalism's theological history, and then it surveys some of the characters who nurtured universalism here in Wausau. Religious histories are complex, if you don't know. And this is only a portion of a much larger story. 
So universalism arrived in Wausau to the best of our records in the late 1860s and it was formally gathered as a religious society in the year 1870 when this city was hardly more than a dusty settlement. If you could imagine this, the nation at that time was still recovering from the Civil War and who occupied the White House was the war's most famous general, Ulysses S. Grant. A little bit more context. In 1870, a four-room house cost $700, and a set of solid gold hoop earrings would have cost you three bucks. I offer these figures as a preamble to the fact that the history of universalism in America begins in an era as strange to us as our era would be to them. When universalism arrived in America, just think about this, bifocals and the cotton gin hadn't been invented, nor had the phonograph or dental floss, or toilet paper. What's amazing about the Universalist Project in Wausau is that just as the project here in Wausau gets underway, the national movement, it starts to shake apart. Anne-Lee Bresler, a scholar of American religious history and the author of the Universalist Movement in America, notes, and I quote, As a denomination, universalism proved less and less viable as the 19th century drew to a close. Having peaked around the year 1880, the number of congregations fell precipitously thereafter. Had the Universalists not pooled their resources with the Unitarians, the Universalists might have ceased to exist altogether. Bressler goes on, quote, The movement was already losing its appeal and reason for being as early as the 19th century. As a generation of preachers that had shared the basic insights and outlook of God's salvation for all began to pass from the scene, universalism lost its distinctiveness as a popular movement. It was virtually already dead in this respect by the time of the 1870 centennial celebration, end quote. The reason universalism survived in Wausau is because people made great sacrifices to guarantee its survival, even as the national movement lost its reason for being. Early members of the church endured through periods without ministers. They stayed together through two world wars, a depression, a pandemic, and countless other setbacks that could have ended the church, but they held together and formed a vibrant community that exists today. Walsall's early universalists believed that the message of God's loving grace and salvation of all of humankind was a story that must be told. So God's saving grace, which is to say God's unmerited favor manifest as an eternal bestowal of blessings, this idea has been debated by preachers and theologians and obnoxious dinner guests for millennia. Does God save only a select few? And if so, who are the select and how do I get to be one? For most of Christian history, God's grace was regarded as limited and selective. However, this fact betrays thinkers like Origen of Alexandria, who, are, who articulated a version of universalist salvation as early as the second century. Origen's thinking endured well into the fourth century, and it was even incorporated into the writings of Arius and Athanasius, both of whom occupied seats at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. And they would point to passages in scripture, such as in the 12th chapter of John, where Jesus says, and I quote, I do not judge anyone who hears my words and does not keep them, for I came not to judge the world, 
but to save the world. Thinkers would also point elsewhere, as in St. Paul's letter to the Romans, where he says, and I quote, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Universalists believe that Jesus and St. Paul proved Christian eschatology had a vision of restoration rather than an eschatological vision of purgation, and they used the Bible to prove it. But this idea remained mostly underground for millennia. And so from the 4th century until the 18th century, oceans of ink would be used to advance the notion that God's salvation is as selective as his vengeance is wanton. As the American Christian theologian Jonathan Edwards preached to his congregation in 1741 at Northampton, Massachusetts, quote, there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God, end quote. We are all sinners in the hand of an angry God, Edwards would warn. And Edwards was born in East Windsor, Connecticut, in what was then British America. Edwards and other ministers throughout the American colonies preached a popular version of Christianity based on the teachings of the French theologian, pastor, and reformer John Calvin. And John Calvin's theology is often caricatured, and it's more nuanced than suggested, Nevertheless, it popularized the doctrines of predestination and God's absolute sovereignty and salvation of the human soul from death and eternal damnation. Calvinism, as we call his theology today, continues to influence the American religious consciousness. And I want to linger on Calvin for just a moment because without him and his interpreters, universalism would never have existed. Universalism in the minds of many Christians was Calvinism improved. Versions of, unity, or rather, versions of universalism popped up throughout history, but nothing stuck. What solidified it and led to its arrival in the American colonies were two men, James Relly and John Murray. So in the middle of the 18th century, James Relly, a Welsh preacher trained by the British Calvinist George Whitfield, he came under the influence of John Wesley before decamping for universalism. And as David Robinson, professor of American literature at Oregon State University notes, quote, Relly argued that all humanity actually achieved union with Christ in his death and therefore had already paid the price for sin, end quote. Relly's universalism left him at odds with his mentor, Whitfield, and it eventually earned him the nickname, quote, wretch, courtesy of John Wesley, the founder of who would go on to found the Methodist Church. Relly's brief pastorate at London in Coachmakers Hall would eventually bring him into contact with John Murray, the future founder of Universalism in America. John Murray was born at Alton, England in 1741, and as Robinson notes, quote, he was brought up a strict Calvinist and suffered much psychological torment from his fear that he was foreordained to damnation. The influence of John Wesley relieved that fear in some respects. But once the pattern of his progress away from the harsher elements of Calvinism had begun, it would not stop short of the total rejection of everlasting punishment. And so Murray would read Relly's work on universal salvation, and eventually he even sat to listen to him preach. And Murray's conversion to universalism came with a great cost. His friends abandoned and ridiculed him, stripping him of all of his social status in the process. And in the midst of all of this isolation, Murray suffered additional tragedies. His wife, and very shortly thereafter, his child, would both die. 
And then this was followed by a period of economic hardships that led to his incarceration in a debtor's prison. But from prison, Murray's prayers were answered when he was offered passage to the American colonies. The Universalist movement began, Robinson notes, when John Murray's boat from England ran aground in the year 1770 at Cranberry Inlet in New Jersey. And it was there that he met Thomas Potter, a man who had been literally waiting for God to send a preacher to him with a distinctive message. And Mary, he believed, and Murray rather, believed that he was that man. Murray traveled extensively throughout the American colonies preaching a message of God's universal love and salvation. And in May 1775, in the midst of the American Revolutionary War, the commanders of the Rhode Island regiments invited Murray to be their chaplain. And so Murray, of course, accepted, but even in war, Murray's universalism was objected to by other chaplains for being too radical. And it's very likely that Murray would have been forced out of this post if it weren't for the direct intervention of General George Washington, who on September 17, 1775, sent an order to the Rhode Island regiments demanding that Murray's appointment, quote, be respected as such, end quote. It's believed that Murray found favor with General Washington after a mutual friend of theirs, Nathaniel Green, invited Murray to dine with the future first president. And Murray's preaching garnered the interests of many American founders, many of whom had eclectic religious interests in their own right. And John and Abigail Adams eventually sat to hear Murray preach. Abigail Adams was so unimpressed with Murray's preaching that she went to her journal afterwards and noted that he spoke without a script and with excessive emotion. Murray would settle in Gloucester, Massachusetts, where he enjoyed the patronage of Winthrop Sargent, his future father-in-law and a prominent ship captain who helped found a Universalist church there in 1779 with, of course, Murray as its pastor. And so Murray and his congregation struggled for the right to to form a dissenting church for more than a decade. And in 1793, he moved to Boston, where he remained until his death. Murray eventually remarried Judith Sargent Stevens, whose writing kept the family financially solvent and inspired a generation of activists who pursued equal rights for women. By the time Murray died in 1815, his message of universalism had inspired a new generation of universalist ministers like Ellen N. Winchester and especially Hosea Ballou, who eventually served as minister to the influential Second Universalist Society in Boston for 28 years until his retirement in 1845. The mid-19th century was an era of vitality and growth for American universalism. Ballou's influence, as Charles Howe notes, took place not only through the power of his preaching and the attractiveness of his theology, but also through his active role in denominational meetings, his journalistic endeavors, and his teaching of future ministers. It was Murray who gave birth to universalism in America, but it was Ballou who turned it into a full-blown movement. And Howe draws attention to Ballou's influence and highlights how it helped spread universalism westward and southward through the efforts of itinerant preachers like Stephen R. Smith in upstate New York, Nathaniel Stacy in New York, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, and George Rogers, a lay preacher who from 1829 until his death in 1846 traveled tirelessly throughout the southeast and the border states of the Midwest. And by 1845, state conventions had been organized in all of the New England states, including New York, Ohio, Illinois, Michigan, Iowa, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, South Carolina, and Georgia. 
as well as a southern convention which included Maryland, Virginia, and North Carolina. It was during this period of extraordinary growth that the seed of universalism would be planted in Mrs. Mary Schofield, the person who delivered the message of God's universal love and salvation to Wausau. The earliest records of the First Universalist Church of Wausau have been lost, but Mrs. Schofield's obituary from the Wausau pilot on September 26, 1893 says that she was born in Canisaraga, Madison County, New York on April 2, 1832. And it's highly unlikely that she encountered Universalism in New York as there are no records of the Universalist Church ever being near where she lived. However, that doesn't rule out the possibility that she might have encountered a Universalist circuit rider passing through on the way to Buffalo or Rochester. What records do show is that for an unknown reason, Mrs. Schofield went west in her teens and eventually settled in Joliet, Illinois, where she met and later married Dr. William Schofield in 1852. And by 1852, Universalism had been in Joliet for nearly 20 years. In fact, Joliet's first church was the first Universalist society, which was likely where Mrs. Schofield encountered Universalism in the wood-framed meeting house that once sat on the corner of Chicago and Clinton Streets. And so immediately after their marriage, the Schofields were located to the village of Eau Claire, which would later be renamed Schofield in their honor. Dr. Schofield purchased what became one of the region's most productive sawmills. And with wood crafted in their mill, Dr. and Mrs. Schofield laid out the village. They erected homes, established stores, warehouses, and other facilities. Dr. Schofield died tragically at only 52 years old in 1862. Mrs. Schofield, now widowed and a single mother to six children, took over the family businesses. And it was during the 1860s that Mrs. Schofield and about 20 others started gathering in homes to worship as an itinerant Universalist congregation. And by the end of the year 1868, Wausau's Universalists decided that they wanted to formally gather. And so on November 20th, 1870, a meeting was held at the office of J.A. Farnham Esquire to officially organize the Universalist Society of Wausau. And by the end of that meeting, they had raised enough funds to erect their first church. And Mrs. Schofield herself donated the parcel of land, the northeast corner of Fifth and McClellan Streets, upon which the first church was built in 1872 for a total of $891. Later that year, Mrs. Schofield moved with her family from Schofield to Wausau, no doubt motivated, at least in part, by a desire to be closer to a religious community. The early Universalist church in Wausau, like the city then, was primitive. The church was in constant transition. Ministers on the frontier stayed with congregations for two to three years before leaving, as they were often bivocational, operating farms or working in other industries as they also pastored. And so in the time between ministers, the members of Wausau's Universalist Society would gather for Sunday school and to pray and have fellowship. And by 1881, the Universalist Society of Wausau had already outgrown their first building, which they sold to the Lutherans of St. Stephen's. And from 1881 to 1885, the congregation gathered resources to erect its second church. And it was completed in the year 1886 for a total of $4,000 on yet another parcel of land donated by Mrs. Schofield at the northwest corner of Fifth and McClellan Streets. And Universalism in Wausau continued to grow. 
On, 18, or on April 28, 1887, the Universalist Society of Wausau successfully petitioned Judge T.C. Ryan of Madison for recognition as a church. And so now the First Universalist Church of Wausau, the congregation now had to adopt bylaws which were recorded by the church school superintendent and board secretary, Mrs. Schofield, in a beautiful cursive that captures the community's hope, precarity, and brevity, or bravery, sorry. The bylaws state ministers were to preach, care for the congregation, and preside over communion, period. The church board dealt with the rest. Membership in the church was also a very serious endeavor. Prospective ministers were subject to 12-month probationary periods in which they were to prove faithful to the congregation's expectations of support, not only financially, but in terms of attendance and volunteerism too. The writing of the bylaws was undertaken with the support of, with the, with the support of the Reverend Barton Flyer Rogers, who served the church as minister from 1886 to 1888, and he was the first minister to occupy the pulpit in the second build, building. Roger's story is worth reviewing as it captures how someone's simple faith can lead to extraordinary ends. Moreover, it captures the kind of existence common to many Midwestern Universalist pioneers. So Universalism, contrary to the patrician Unitarians, was characterized by a working class ethos. Many early pastors received little to no training and some never finished high school. And even the ones lucky enough to attend seminary at St. Lawrence in New York or Crane in Boston arrived having just a few years of formal education. The most important thing for a universalist pastor was not a seminary education, it was in fact God's calling. Rogers, the minister who helped transition the congregation from a society into a formal church, believed that he was called by God and then he moved in 1858 from Piermont, Grafton County, New Hampshire, to farm and preach around Fox Lake, Wisconsin. And in 1862, he joined the Federal Union Army as chaplain of the 15th Illinois Volunteers. And General William Tecumseh Sherman personally nicknamed Rogers the working chaplain as he was touched by Rogers' tenderness toward the wounded and dying soldiers. Rogers would see the battles at Vicksburg, Champion Hill, Atlanta, Rome Crossroads, Hatchie's Bridge, Kennesaw Mountain, and others. And late in the war, Rogers met Marianne Bickerdyke, also known as Mother Bickerdyke, who served as hospital administrator for the Union, with sole responsibility for more than 300 field hospitals. And like General Sherman, Mother Bickerdyke was inspired by Rogers' tenderness and personally entrusted him with the care of her patients. In all, Rogers would see nearly 15,000 Union soldiers lose their lives fighting to rid the nation of the sin of slavery. And at the war's end, Rogers returned to farming, eventually accepting a call to Wausau where he infused new life into the church. The last line of Rogers' obituary captures his religious devotion, quote, patiently he waited for his release and stronger grew his confident hope in immortality, end quote. Rogers, a humble farming preacher, ministered to thousands, and he spoke of God's endless love among the early pioneers of universalism and the brave Union soldiers, many of whom gave their lives to ensure America's promise to be a land free for everyone. The move to the third and current church building would be made without Mrs. Schofield, 
who died at home in 1893, Mrs. Schofield's pioneering spirit led universalism to the northern regions of the Middle West. In tragedy, as a single mother, as a businesswoman, she gave every spare moment to ensure the progress of the church she helped give birth to in a friend's living room. And when she had died, she had rightfully earned the title Mother of the Church. Without Mrs. Schofield, it's reasonable to believe that the first Universalist Church of Wausau would have, never been in, would have never been created. The mantle of leadership for the next era was picked up by several influential Wausau residents, among them George Reuter, founder of the Reuter Ware Law Firm, Carl Mathy, founder of Wausau Paper, Circuit Court Judge Alexander H. Reed, and businessman Cyrus Yawkey, whose garden we're sitting in right now. The years spent in the second church, 1886 to 1914, was a time of remarkable growth. As the congregation grew in membership, the church school formalized. A ladies' society was formed to aid in all church work and to promote harmony and good feeling among its, among its members. The mission circle was organized in 1904 to perform outreach work in the city. The Clara Barton Guild, named after the Universalist Civil War nurse and founder of the American Red Cross, was formed to teach young women the importance of service to the nation. An association of Universalist women gathered, eventually creating camps safe for children with diabetes to attend. A men's group was formed to nurture men's spiritual health. Moreover, there were clubs for new couples. There was, of course, Bible study, a great books discussion called The Forum that lasted into the 70s, I think a youth group, and the Boy Scouts. Though there are several claimants, some suggest that the first Boy Scouts troop in the United States started at the First Universalist Church of Wausau. In the early months of 1910, Judge Reed traveled to England to personally meet with Sir Baden Powell, the Scouts founder, to obtain a charter. Judge and now Scoutmaster Reed formed Troop 1 on December 16, 1910, with 14 boys from the church school. The second group, formed about a year later with 12 other boys from the church school, had Carl Mathy as scoutmaster. Judge Reed went on to serve as scoutmaster to dozens of Wisconsin's first scouts. In addition, he'd preside for a quarter century as one of the church's main school teachers, while also occupying a seat on the church's board and various committees. And when Judge Reed died on March 26, 1938, there was hardly a benevolent society in the city that didn't count him as a member. His contributions to the church in Wausau were evident in the Herald Record's account of his funeral. Prior to his funeral at church in the living room of his home at 524 Franklin Street, Judge Reed's casket lay in state, attended by a guard of Boy Scouts. Every attorney and judge in Wausau, along with four Wisconsin Supreme Court justices, were in attendance. So were judges and attorneys who knew Reed from his decades on the bench, many who had traveled from Stevens Point Eau Claire, Fond du Lac, Marionette, Merrill, Rhinelander, and Milwaukee. And at his funeral, the church's then minister, the Reverend Noble McLaughlin, read from Second Chronicles, quote, And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because of the good he had done in Israel, both towards God and his house, end quote. McLaughlin said of his friend and parishioner, quote, He recognized that every man owes something to his community, end quote. And even as Judge Reed lay dying in the Mayo Clinic, Judge Reed, in a final visit with his beloved pastor, said he wasn't ready to die as he felt his work wasn't yet done. Judge Reed's religion, it was remarked, was characterized by reverence and practical action. 
It could be said that Judge Reed lived universalism's values in the same manner as Mrs. Schofield. His contributions to the church were integral to the congregation's growth, and Judge Reed's and other support like his inspired the congregation in those early days to imagine a church capable of changing people's hearts and souls with the message of God's endless love. The good news of universal love was spreading, and it was changing people's lives. And by 1914, the congregation had outgrown the second church building, and so the board started to search for new property and an architect capable of creating what they hoped would be a sermon formed out of stone. Carl Mathy and the church's building committee toured Milwaukee in search of a church like the one that they had been dreaming of, and they found what they were looking for on the corner of East Hampshire and Hackett Avenues. Plymouth Congregational had just been built in 1913 by the architect Alexander Eschweiler. And so Mathy rushed back to Wausau and called the board to session in search of a vote that would allow Mr. Eschweiler to build the Wausau Universalist new church. And so plans were solicited from Eschweiler's firm with a lofty vision in mind. At the dedication of the third and current church at 504 Grant Street, Mathy told a journalist for the Record Herald that Wausau's, universe, Wausau's Universalist wanted, quote, was a church as substantial as our faith a church of stone gathered from our own hills and revealing the beauty of a thousand years gathered out of storm and frost and heated days with infinite patience by the supreme artist who so loves the world that he heaps it full of beauty and riches, end quote. They would achieve this vision, but they'd encounter setbacks along the way. The funds necessary to erect a church like the congregation imagined were not coming in as hoped, Everyone had already given what they could, but the collection was still thousands of dollars short of the anticipated costs. And so on Sunday, March 29, 1914, the board gathered to discuss whether or not a new church was actually going to be a real possibility. The meeting minutes say in customary terseness that, quote, C.C. Yawkey withdrew his pledge of $5,000 for the new church, which was roughly $135,000 in today's terms. Cece and his wife Alice had a change of heart, and they decided to increase their pledge to include the entire cost of the guild hall and also all of the new church's furnishings. At that point, the new church, a sermon in stone, could be built. Yawkey's gift totaled what the Wausau pilot said was roughly half of the entire 82,000 that it took to erect the new building. In today's dollars, Yawkey's gift totaled $1.1 million dollars. The congregation, in grateful thanks, named the fellowship hall after Cyrus Yaki in honor of his and Alice's generosity. And so the second church was sold to Mount Sinai congregation just as the Universalists moved into their new church on November 2nd, 1915. And at the building dedication, Matthew summarized the congregation's vision for the new church like this, quote, we wanted a church, warm, pulsating, breathing the very imminence of God, end quote. A series of tragedies would strike the congregation and its ministers in the decades following the move to the new church on Grant Street. The Reverend William H. Gould served the church from 1912 to 1918. In his last year with the church, his wife, Alice May, would die unexpectedly. The board immediately granted Gould an indefinite leave with pay in order to mourn and care for his daughter, but he left for a fresh start in Portland, Oregon, where he served a church and helped to form the Federal Council of Churches. Gould was succeeded by the Reverend William J. Taylor in 1919. 
It was during Taylor's tenure that the first production of Marjorie Lacey Baker's Logos Christmas pageant was held, complete with costumes stitched from fabrics brought back from the Holy Land. As evidence of the universalist belief in the priesthood of all believers, Alice Yawkey wielded her ecclesiastical authority by instituting the usage of water drawn from the site of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River for all church baptisms, without which Alice drew herself and brought back to the congregation in 1921. Eight years into Taylor's successful ministry in 1927, he traveled to Boston to accept an honorary doctorate from Crane Theological Seminary at Tufts University. But upon his return, he fell ill, and two weeks later, he died. Church board members would serve as pallbearers for Taylor, who left behind his wife, Margaret, and three children. The meetings of the board held in the days after Taylor's death reveal a church in shock. They also reveal the generous heart of the community. The board voted to liquidate the entire debt of the Taylor family and then cover all of Mrs. Taylor's moving expenses so she could return to the East Coast where she had family. In addition to the financial generosity, C.C. Yawkey made a motion to the floor asking that all board members and their spouses be present at the train depot to personally see Mrs. Taylor off, and the motion passed unanimously. The church's next pastor, the Reverend Noble Lee McLaughlin, arrived after 17 years of serving the now defunct Universalist Church in Monroe, Wisconsin. His 14-year pastorate in Wausau from 1927 to 1941 holds the record as the longest in the church's history. Like Taylor before, McLaughlin died tragically while serving as the church's pastor, leaving behind his wife, Nellie, and their beloved dogs, Bonnie and Laddie. McLaughlin's ministry is notable, not least for the stability his long pastorate provided. What wonders what he might have accomplished if he wasn't struck down in the prime of his life. McLaughlin's scrapbooks capture his hyperactive tendencies. He joined nearly every benevolent society in the city, was a sought-after public speaker, a world traveler, a devoted husband, son, brother, and uncle, and by all accounts, he was a musician capable of dazzling audiences with his sonorous tenor and piano playing. And apparently, he could be electric in the pulpit, too. McLaughlin's ministry, like Rogers, started off humbly. His father died when he was three, so when he came of age, his mother pulled him from school in order to earn an income to support her and his seven siblings. But eventually, he was able to attend St. Lawrence with strict expectations given by the seminary's president, which he obviously adhered to as he graduated in 1906 with a Bachelor of Divinity degree. And later, in 1935, McLaughlin's alma mater awarded him an honorary doctorate for his contributions to the Universalist movement worldwide, and also earning an honorary doctorate from St. Lawrence that same evening was the poet Robert Frost. McLaughlin's ministry deserves deeper research as it is notable in many respects. He was a traditional Universalist Christian in the same vein as Universalist ministers before going back to Hosea Ballou and John Murray. But the generation of ministers emerging from Universalist and Unitarian seminaries from the 1940s onward did so hungry for change. They lived in an era on the cusp of extraordinary scientific and technological advances. Wassell's minister after Noble McLaughlin, the Reverend Brainerd F. Gibbons, who served into the mid-1950s, eventually left for Boston after being appointed president of the Universalist Church of America. 
and it was Gibbon's own sermon, which was controversial at the time, entitled New Wine and Old Bottles, delivered to the National Gathering of Universalists in 1949 that marked the virtual end of Universalist Christianity. Moreover, it signaled the beginning of the project aimed at creating a universal world religion, thus moving universalism into ideological alignment with the Unitarians. That story from a denominational level has been told countless times. How that evolution looked from the perspective of local congregations, and specifically the congregation here in Wausau, has yet to be told. I want to conclude this survey of the first 75 years of the First Universalist Unitarian Church of Wausau by summarizing a sermon the Reverend McLaughlin offered this congregation in 1939, just a handful of months before his untimely death. The sermon is entitled, The Gospel According to John, and McLaughlin begins by surveying the Johns of Christendom, John the Baptist, John the Disciple, John of the Gospel and the Epistles in the Book of Revelation. He tells of John Wesley, and of course he mentions John Calvin, for whom universalism formed in response to. At the sermon's conclusion, he names the most famous John of all, John Doe, which is but a metaphor for all of the many millions who walk this earth who we don't know, people with sorrows and regrets, with dreams and joys like us. He reminds us that at some point, all of us are mostly unknown, save for the small group of people who have us in their lives. And with that, he tells his congregation that it's not who you are that matters most, but rather it's what you are. Our lives, he wants us to imagine, are sermons. All the sermons of the world are not preached in the pulpit, McLaughlin said. Some sermon is preached by everyone who walks this earth. He preaches by what he says, by what he does, and above all, by what he is. As the sage of Concord, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, what you are speaks so loudly that I cannot hear what you say. And as Shakespeare said, if one listens closely, you can even hear sermons in stone. The question McLaughlin no doubt wants us to ask ourselves is this, what is the message of the sermon of my life? And nobody can answer that question but you. But if the answer isn't love, the universalist would say, it's probably not a sermon worth preaching. Carol Bronson's question is, what did the universalists bring whenever they started being a part of the church? That, sorry, the Unitarians, excuse What did the Unitarians bring whenever they started being part of the church? Is that the, is that the question? So the, the, the Unitarians were very much in line with that, um, by this point, this idea of a universal world religion. Um, and that's really what they were championing. And so at the time, the last president of the American Unitarian Association is a man by the name of Dana Greeley, who served the Arlington Street Church in Boston, right off the Boston Common. And so he left to be the president of the American Unitarian Association. And already by the end of his ministry, what he was very, very focused on was this idea of a universal world religion. Um, and this is what was really commonly being starting to be preached from, from Unitarian pulpits. Really, the only holdouts that maintained like a Unitarian Christian bent are really few and far between, and they were then by that point. I mean, really, you can name them on one hand. You have King's Chapel in Boston, which still uses the Book of Common Prayer every Sunday. Um, the first parish of, of Weston in Weston, Massachusetts, still recites the Lord's Prayer and, and use, uses biblical readings, but most moved in that vein. In fact, what you see, the last time that the Lord's Prayer was ever offered in a service at Wausau 
was um, in 1972. And so they've never used the Lord's Prayer ever since in a service since 1972. I'm pretty sure this communion silver has been locked up since then too um, because, because they stopped asking the minister to preside over communion. Instead, they asked him to preside over the whole church. So, uh, yeah. They also brought Harvard, which didn't hurt. <laughs> Any other questions? Okay, let's eat.